Welcome to another podcast by InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley, joined by Ross Martin and Greg Barnes, and we're going to do things a little bit differently in this podcast. Uh, we're going to talk about the day, a day in the life of an IC staffer, beat writer Greg Barnes, Ross Martin, go through their routine, whether it's basketball or football um, or even baseball sometimes. And that's what I'm going to start with, though. Greg, uh, NC State was ranked two in the nation, hosting Carolina in a pivotal series for both programs. It's always a big deal when State and Carolina played. You were in Durham when they played at the Durham's Bulls Park. Uh, but this time it meant something. And Carolina goes to Raleigh. Pulls off the Friday night game, which is not that big a deal. State's lost the Friday night game plenty of times this season during their run. Um, But Carolina came back and beat their best pitcher on Saturday and then completed the sweep on Sunday. Where does that put this North Carolina team that, quite frankly, after 14 games of the season, nobody uh, thought they would live up to any preseason expectation? Yeah, it's it's really remarkable what they've done. Uh, really, since the the Florida State series, they lost that series, uh, and I think they've won five straight series. They've won seventeen of their last twenty games. And as you mentioned, you know, NC State uh, was was two in the nation, and a lot of people kind of had them pegged as a top four national seed, state's own position for a national seed. But with North Carolina, uh, you know, getting getting those three big wins, first time they've ever swept state at state in baseball. So I mean, it's a, a big deal. Uh, but they already had the ACC's best RPI, the, the ACC's best strength of schedule. And so now when you when you add in the best record in the league, they got a one-game lead over Clemson right now, a two-and-a-half game lead over Duke in, in the Coastal with six to play. And they are in position uh, to really lock up a, another national seed. They're number two overall, I believe, last year. And so, I mean, if they can if they can somehow win at Duke, win that series at Duke next week, they'll be heavily favored to to win the series at home against Virginia Tech to close up the regular season. If those two things happen, I mean, I, I think undoubtedly this is a this is a team that will probably be a top four national seed. And as you mentioned, I mean, when you start the year seven and seven, and I want to say maybe they were fourteen and eleven. Uh, to kind of turn it on the way that they have and the way they've done it. I mean, they they haven't relied on one or two guys to do it. I mean, they've gotten contributions up and down the lineup. Uh, they haven't had Luca Delatry. You know, he was a preseason All-America. He was a Friday night guy. He hadn't even been playing. Um, so the fact they've been able to do it like this, kind of grinding out games, a lot of tough games in Raleigh. They had to hold off state in, late in all those games. Uh, but they did it. And so this has been a, a remarkable turnaround for for Mike Fox's club. Ross, we talked a little bit off air, but, you know, being a national seed is a big deal. You get to basically stay at home as long as you're winning, winning before heading to Omaha. Carolina, uh, like Greg mentioned, didn't make that work out for them last season, but this team's a, a different ball game. And NC State had a lot of, uh, let's say, vitriol for the Heels <laughs> baseball squad after that team in Durham. Um, but Carolina goes over there and, and sort of quiets all that. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like, you know, state fans were 
feeling pretty good about this team heading to this weekend and they're the higher ranked team. And, you know, it's kind of a, I feel like, you know, in general, the Wolfpack faithful are, are more into baseball than maybe the Tar Heel fans are. So maybe it means a little more to them. And for UNC to go over there and sweep them at home, I mean, that's incredible. That's huge for your confidence. You know, I watched some highlights here and there. I don't claim to be a big baseball guy, but I mean, it got a little chippy there with that collision at home plate and that kind of stuff, which you love to see in a rivalry with the benches kind of clearing there and, and nothing really happening. But I mean, the way UNC's playing, clicking when it matters. We talk about Roy Williams getting his team to play um, at, the, at their best late in the season when it matters the most, rolling into the tournament tournaments. That's kind of what looks like Mike Fox and his guys are doing with UNC, and they have two more series in the ACC and some uh, some midweek games, and then it's going to be time for the postseason. So things will be going pretty well for UNC baseball, and it's something to hop on in and, and get involved with now that obviously the two main – Revenue sports are over, so it's, it's been kind of exciting to see the progression of this team from where they started to where they are now, and it, it's kind of cool. Yeah, and I'll tell you, there's no better value in go- than going to a college baseball game. I mean, it's it's a fun time. It's solid baseball. Um, my son had his state friends take him to see the game Saturday, and lo and behold, they left after Carolina went up 8-3. Um, so – the, the rumor that state fans stay to the bitter end is not always true. Let's uh, let's get to our main topic, and it's perfect that you guys are joining me um, because a lot of people always wonder, how does Inside Carolina do what they do? And there's plenty of boots on the ground that take care of a lot of the behind-the-scenes work. But, Greg, I'll start with you. Um, let's just pick it. Let's start with football. Let's go uh, – sort of daily routine leading up to a football game. And Ross, I come to you because y'all do two separate things really in the process of covering a game to bring all this content to the inside Carolina readers. But Greg, you go first. What's your game plan? Your game week look like when Carolina's playing football? Well, let me start here, Tommy. And um, it, it really begins uh, in the off season. Uh, it starts really in spring football, even before when you're trying to learn about all the players, trying to learn about all the position changes, uh, any schematic changes, new coaches, because what you're hoping to do is that once training camp starts in August, you're stockpiling information. You're, you're absorbing as much info as you can. And I know a lot of a lot of fans get a little bit upset with how Larry Fedora kind of keeps things close to the vest. Fortunately, we've been able to establish enough uh, sources that we get a good bit of background information. It's not information that we can necessarily you know, lay out to the masses, uh, but it's good for us to know how things are playing out. And uh, like last year, we knew that you know, Chas Rat was making a, uh, a solid push, uh, while at the same time, Brandon Harris was really struggling to adapt to the offense. And we knew that about, you know, two or three weeks in the training camp. Uh, and so when Chas Rat ultimately became the starter, it wasn't that big of a surprise. So you're acquiring all this information and that's the kind of the key component because once the season starts, you don't want to be say, okay, wait a minute, who's this guy? Wait, what he's at this position. When did that happen? You got to have all those things in place so that once game week starts, you can really focus on the opponent uh, and that allows you to say, okay, well, UNC matches up well here. They don't match up well here. Uh, and you can really focus on 
of the week at hand instead of trying to build so much background. So uh, more than anything, the background is the most important part, not just for the season, but for each individual game. Now for, for game week, uh, you, we start with Monday, uh, Larry Fedora has his press conference. So I see is there in force. We got, we get kind of the, uh, the bullet points of how that week is going to play out. But I think for, for us, the most important days during the week are going to be Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, and I say that because that's when we actually get to go uh, sometimes to practice, but especially after practice, we have post-practice interviews, talk to Larry, talk to some of the, the assistants, talk to a lot of the players. That's when we can really dig in and say, okay, you've got this opponent coming up. What's something unique you're doing? You know, last year this happened. How do you respond to that? How do you make changes? Uh, and so you you kind of pick and pull, and you get all your information, uh, as much information as you can get from those uh, those opportunities. And then from there, it's just churning out content, and you kind of build your uh, your information base until you get to the end of the week, so that when Saturday comes and the game kicks off. You've got all these ideas in your head of saying, okay, I'm looking for this. I'm looking for this. I'm looking for this. You know, can UNC defend the run here? Uh, they've, they've changed up how they're doing their secondary. How's that going to play out? Who's going to be the, who's going to be the, the quarterback that's going to make the, the biggest uh, difference in this particular game. So all these different things you have in the back of your mind when a game starts, and then it's just a matter of letting things kind of play out. Yeah. And, um, to I kind of add on there, I think Monday, you know, Greg said that Tuesday and Wednesday are super valuable, and they are. But Monday, you get 20 minutes with Larry Fedora, and there's only, you know, there's maybe maybe eight writers in there, a couple TV cameras, and usually the beat writers are asking the questions. Um, Aaron Beer with AP, News Observer, Greg and I, um, Andrew Jones with Tar Illustrated. And you can, you can really talk to Fedora, and he's pretty open as much as Larry Fedora can be. Um, in terms of you know what he liked from the tape from the previous game, Saturday's game, what he didn't like, what he saw from the tape, what he knows about the team they're facing um, the next weekend. And, and I really enjoy that. It's always 11.45 on that Monday. Um, we meet there, and it's kind of, a I guess, a ritual to kind of kick off the week. I understand they used to serve food at that event, which they don't do anymore, like a little brunch situation. And then Bojangles. we used to get – Yeah, I missed that. <laughs> that was before I joined the beat. Um, that would be awesome. We used to get players um, on that Monday as well. Up until 2016, we had players. We'd see Mitch Trubisky every Monday, and that would be his availability along with a defensive player. They cut that out with the new NCAA rules with the amount of time players can commit to football. So that was like an extra day because Monday is usually the day off for players. Um, so we don't get players anymore, but we get Fedora. And then what I, and, and Greg touched on it, what I really like about Tuesday and Wednesday is you get some time with the, the coordinators and coach cap is really good. And you can, you know, he's personable and he'll talk to you about what he likes about his group, his, his skill players, his offensive line, what he sees out of the defense. You can kind of get some stuff out of it, out of him about you know, the challenges that the opposition uh, is posing to his team. And then you get to talk to uh, John Papuchas and Gene Chizik before him. And Gene Chizik was great. He'd sit there and talk to you and, you could really pick his brain on certain things, and they're pretty candid, maybe a little more candid than Fedora, and you're able to get more depth into actual football talk and stuff that helps you kind of create your content for that week. 
So it is very um, scheduled for football. You have uh, Monday press conference with Larry. You have uh, you know offense or defense on on Tuesday and Wednesday, and then kind of Thursday and Friday is the lead up to the game on Saturday, and that's kind of how our week looks up until the game day. So Greg and you too, Ross. During the game, and, and Greg, you can go first. During the game, you're telling me that you've got an angle you want to take or that you're thinking about at least um, or have several. And this sort of brings up the question, how does this uh, game report get out so well, fast? Well, Tommy, why don't we go back to like getting into the stadium and like what, you know, Greg gets there early with his binoculars and is like putting out a scoop, that kind of stuff. Uh, okay. Okay. Let's the back radio, up. Yeah, so let's back all the way up to the radio the, show. Yeah. The w, WCHL Inside Carolina tailgate show that we did this past season. And talk about that a little bit, Greg. I mean, what preparation goes into um, Saturdays before you even get to the stadium? Walk us through the radio show. And then uh, when both of you guys sort of get to the stadium, what are we doing at that point? Well, radio show, we have a unique situation in that we're on WCHL. And for most of their content, and they have a, a couple hours before the game that they, they air, uh, it's geared toward the casual fan. And so while the casual fan may know who most of the starters are, they really don't know and likely don't care who are some guys on the, the depth chart. Uh, they're not so interested in the schematics. Uh, they don't care that much that it's Georgia Tech, other than the fact they know that Paul Johnson is the coach and they run a triple option. Uh, so what we try to provide in typical IC fashion is a lot more uh, – in-depth coverage of that. And I, I think we did a pretty good job with that last year. Buck Sanders and I, I want to say it was 2010. It may have been 09 and 2010. Um, we did a, a radio show at WCHL. And at that time, Ron Stutz uh, was the host. And he kind of just handed it off to, uh, to Buck and I. But this year has been, you know, Tommy has been more of the, the host and, uh, Ross and I kind of jumped in, but the idea is to provide unique perspective and kind of get more in depth about certain matchups and which players could be key components and who's out and who's injured and who's playing well and, and all those sorts of things. So it, as I mentioned earlier, throughout the week, you're acquiring all this data as much as you can, all this info, and you want to compile it. And in most situations is one of those odd things where you have all this data available and you never really get to use it because um, you don't have enough content avenues to put it out. But now that we're able to do the radio show, we're able to say, okay, well, I've got this here that I'm really not going to be able to use. So here's an opportunity to, to say it and it's something unique. And so that, that was kind of the idea for me is to come in and say, okay, this is something that they're not going to hear on any other radio show about this UNC Notre Dame game. Um, and I think we did a pretty good job with that. And then when you combine in, you know, Don Callahan's recruiting scoops and, and Ross uh, with his uh, uh, campus report with them living uh, on campus uh, still, I think that's a very, uh, very fun part of the radio show. And I can't forget the food at Carolina Club, Ross. I've yeah. seen you knocking it out there plenty. Yeah. I'll kind of hop into what I do. I try to get to the stadium early. Um, and I just put all my stuff. I go ahead and drop off my bag and everything in the stadium. 
I take a picture and I try to set the stage, put put on Twitter and get a little vibe for the weather. Walk around a little bit, get the campus vibe. Usually go, you know, tailgate with a buddy or two and um, hang out and get the feeling on campus before uh, or around the stadium before heading into the Carolina Club for the radio show. Maybe get some um, Bojangles or Chick Fil A before, and then head into the the Carolina Club and, and they definitely have a good spread there. They had some really good lamb, a uh, good lamb and, and beef dish this this year. That's excellent and. Um, yeah, so that's two hours before the for kickoff, and uh, the radio show happens, and Greg's always dropping good stats and numbers and whatnot. And then we head into the stadium. Greg usually goes up, and um, he can he can speak on it more, but he usually goes into the press box and starts putting together the pregame scoop. I go to the field and try to send what I can from what I see to Greg, so I can report on uh, what the O line looks like. You know, who's starting, who's injured who's dressed out, you know, which quarterback is getting the most reps, who's punting, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, talk to anybody I see and know and kind of anything I can kind of relate to Greg for him to put into the the pregame kind of scoop or, or add into the postgame scoop is kind of done there. And, and, you know, contact with Don as well for recruiting stuff. You never know if there's a surprise recruit or if I can grab a quick picture of, of Zamir White or a big recruit that you think will do well for some quick content and things like that. So, um, and then of course you see the basketball team and that kind of stuff. So I'm on the field, um, gathering any sort of information I think will be good for content mid game, or if they can help Greg, um, put together, uh, something for the pregame. And then, uh, we're kind of there for the national anthem and go from there. So see what I started to skip all that stuff you guys do and our radio show. I'm not sure how I missed that. Greg, I know that being on the road uh, brings some interesting stories, and I want you to share some. I, I believe the last big game I covered was at South Carolina. Uh, not a pregame story, but us sitting up in that booth watching that storm roll across those hills and the flats down there towards that stadium uh, before it actually hit the stadium. But Share some of the stuff from the road. I mean, that you could literally write a book with some of the tales uh, from the road covering Carolina. Oh, oh yeah, it's it's uh, it's incredible some of the stuff that happens. Um, when I first took this job full time back in '07, uh, I had I had written for the magazine for four years prior to that. But in '07, JB Sissel told me he said, "You know, all this all this stuffs." You're pretty complex. However, the, the most challenging thing is going to be the travel. I clearly remember him telling me that. And that is the truth because uh, the travel logistics are, um, are, are tell in and of themselves. Uh, I mean, you can, you can go back. One of my favorite stories is when North Carolina played uh, Notre Dame. I believe it was basketball. This is several years ago. And we, had a flight out. I think it was a noon game. We had a flight out that afternoon and a snowstorm had come in. And so we hustle, we, we get our story up and me and Hawkins were, were there. I think Deanna may have been with us as well at that time. Um, we get everything up. We hop in the car. We're trying to get to the regional airport in South Bend. And it is like a blizzard. And we're, we're trying to get off this exit ramp. And the car sliding everywhere. We're like, well, we, if we just get to the airport, we can get there. So we got to the airport, and there's only a handful of gates at that particular airport. And the entire place is empty. 
There's about 20 of us trying to get on this one plane that hasn't landed yet. Everything outside the windows is perfectly white. There are no planes, no nothing. And if we weren't getting off, you know, getting out of there that day, it may have been another day or two before we could actually leave. And here comes this plane trying to land on uh, this, this snowy runway. It landed, and fortunately, we were able to get out of there. Uh, I mean, there, there's plenty of times when North Carolina played, I want to say they played Texas at Dallas Cowboys Stadium. It was the first basketball game at Cowboys Stadium. Uh, Evan and Markfield and I, Evan's no longer on the beat. He's, uh, he's in a private sector job now. Um, but we had some flight delays, and so we finally get to Fort Worth. And we, we hustle out there, and it's chaotic, and you know, they're trying to figure out how to do traffic and all these kind of things. We literally walk into the game and sit down on our seat straight from our car right at tip-off. Um, I've only missed one tip, and the, the tip that I missed was a game at Rutgers because I had to pick up Jim Hawkins at the airport, and it was snowing. It was difficult for us to get there. We were about two minutes late for that game. And then you get into some of the actual semantics of the game. You know, the Las Vegas story, I've told that story on this podcast several times. Uh, when North Carolina played UNLV in Vegas, they were serving alcohol. Everybody drank way too much. Uh, <laughs> at the end of the game, a, a fan uh, comes out on the court and kind of approaches Roy and knocks over a team manager. And that ends up being like the story of the game. Uh, so this – the stories from the road are, are um, the ones that I'll probably remember the most. And I could go on and on. I mean, there, there's so many kind of rattling around in my, my brain. Um, but the neat thing about the road, and I'll, I'll turn this over to Ross, is is the access for basketball games uh, in the locker room. Right, Ross? Yeah. I mean, we were talking about this before the, uh, before the show, and I know we're kind of jumping from football to, to basketball, but – you know, Greg's on the road more than I am, but what I really enjoy about road basketball games is you're in the locker room after the game and you get access to all the players and there's not too many reporters in there. Um, obviously state, you get more state and Duke and some of the Virginia games, you get more um, reporters, but you know, you can have one-on-one conversations with starters and it's just you and them and you get some video. You can talk to walk-ons, you can talk to freshmen and it's, kind of like a free-for-all you know you can kind of really get into the details and um it's a great access and UNC's you know UNC's pretty good with access for basketball and um you can have great conversations with the players and get to know them and obviously Greg's on the beat more than I and you kind of develop relationships with the players from those road games and kind of being there being there for all 30 plus games and it's you know builds up into the tournament as well at the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament where you can you have all this access in the locker room and stuff. So that's kind of cool, um, developing a relationship with these players, starting off at the beginning, media day, and then just developing it, being there and, and into road games in the AC tournament and uh, in the postseason, which is really cool. Um, I don't know if we want to hop back to football or how we're going to do this, but um, there's differences in how postgame um, works for each sport. So we can dive, dive into that, Tommy, if you would like. Yeah, I'm going to share a story, then I'm going to take a break, and we'll come back and get on track. I remember covering the ACC tournament. Uh, I can't remember when it was. Maybe it was Ed Coda was there, and Chris Carrawell was at Duke. And uh, Coda was not too happy about losing to Duke, and he was kind of talking junk about it. And a guy that used to work for Inside Carolina 
back in the day, not JB Sissel because he's still around, just like I am, the old guys on the block. But he runs back to the Duke locker room and says, Hey, man, Chris, Ed Cota said this. And uh, Carolina's like, Come on, Ed. You know, I think they whipped Carolina in that game or something. It just kind of went back and forth. It, you're right. Being able to get in the locker room and see those guys um, and talk to them. And we used to do opponent post-game locker rooms back in the day when people actually cared. So that was pretty cool at times to get that side of it, whether it was a win for Carolina or a loss. But let's take a quick break, come back. Let's get back on track. We're going to talk about actually covering the sports themselves, the games themselves. We'll do that right after this break. Some brands offer you low finance or cashback or servicing. Renault don't do ors. We do ands. The Renault Kajar with 1.91% APR and €1,000 cashback and three years servicing, saving you thousands. Renault, the brand with the ands. Visit your local Renault dealer. Finances made under a higher purchase agreement. Terms and conditions apply. Deposit required. Subject to lending criteria. See Renault.ie. All right, we're back, and I'm going to start with Greg again. And, Ross, I want your question, your response as well. My thing when I watch a basketball game on TV now, um, and, and when I've covered them in the past, I always tried to actually watch the game. How much of the actual game does a sports writer see, especially now with the advent of Twitter and, and all those type things? Because it used to be a pen and a notepad with a line drawn down the middle covering the basketball game. Um, Greg, how much of the actual game do you see? Do you see all of it? Um, how do you tweet during games? How do you keep up with both? Uh, just share that for our listeners. Yeah, well, we try to tweet throughout the game because we've, I think right now we've got about 109,000 followers on Twitter. And so what we decided years ago was that was a good avenue um, for in-game updates. And we, we direct people from the boards there um, and we provide insight and stats and all those kind of things. And to be honest with you, um, we've gotten so proficient with it that I don't, I don't really miss much of the game when I'm tweeting. Um, typically, you know, after a big play, I'll, I'll throw something up and um, I can do it quick enough uh, that, that I don't really miss the action. I mean, clearly, football is a lot easier because you have such breaks in, in play. Basketball being more up-tempo um, sometimes is a little bit of a challenge. But in terms of the actual writing, um, I, in basketball, I'll say this. I never write anything in the first half, ever. I may write a few, scribble a few notes during a timeout. That's essentially it. But as soon as that halftime horn blows, uh, I take that at 15 minutes and just start grinding out, um, you know, subjects you know we do the the first report where we we try to have you know four five six seven little bullet points essentially and flesh them out like key points of the game and so i'll get a really good head start on that and uh, typically I, you know i'll say okay well these two things for sure are you know something that's worth including and then i'll say okay well this guy had 13 points in the first half clearly we're going to follow that in the second half and you know uh you know whatever stat it may be for either sport and then as the second half comes, you really have to take advantage of your, of your timeouts. Now, if it's a blowout, uh, then I'm not watching near as much of the game because I'm trying to write and get everything knocked out quickly. The challenge is when you have close games, especially in basketball, 
because uh, you have to get things up quickly. And I mean, I think the great example is the 2016 you know, national championship game uh, where you know, North Carolina had kind of fallen behind. And so at that point in time, I mean, it's a national championship game. How do you approach it? And so I, I essentially had a, a story, you know, a couple paragraphs for the main story written when North Carolina was down by nine or whatever it was they were. And then all of a sudden what happens? Carolina comes back and then Paige hits the three-pointer, the double pump, uh, double clutch three-pointer to tie the game with 4.3 seconds left. And so during that timeout, I am frantically putting together a couple paragraphs for a second story. So I've pretty much got two stories written, two blurbs written anyway, uh, depending on how the game's going to end. And at that point in time, I'm saying, okay, hopefully this goes to overtime so I can actually pick one or the other and kind of flesh it out. Of course, that doesn't happen. And then in a span of a couple minutes, you've got to put in a few keywords. Uh, you got to change things up, make sure you have the, the angle right, and then you got to publish it. I mean, we, we try to get these up, you know, within five minutes after the, the game finishes. And so um, it, it's a very unique thing when you're on the beat for uh, as long as I've been. Uh, you rarely get phased. And I'll never forget, you know, Paige is at three, come out of halftime, I'm going to come out of the timeout break. The guy sitting next to me writes for the uh, Philadelphia Inquirer. And when they throw, when Jenkins throws the ball in, he says, uh-oh, Jenkins is uncovered as he's running up the right side of the court right in front of us. I mean, he's not even a half court yet. And that writer mentioned that because he had seen the play before. And then you get the, the game winner for Villanova. And at that point in time, you don't really have time to react. At that point in time, you just got to knock out a story very quickly. Uh, and so you kind of get immune to the emotion, which I know people listen to saying, how in the world can you get immune to it? You just kind of have to. You, you have to understand you have a job to do. Um, and so in those moments, it is, is, it's, uh, I, I don't think I'd say stressful. It was stressful once upon a time. But now you're just kind of locked in, and you've got to get this out quickly because we have to get that up because I have to get that up before I go to press conferences, which start you know ten minutes after the end of the game, uh, and so it's it's hectic, but it's uh, it kind of gets the adrenaline pumping. It's very fun. Uh, it's a challenge, and that's that's why a lot of us do it. Yeah, I wanted to hop in here. It's incredible because I've been next. I mean, this is my first year with Inside Carolina, so I've been next to Greg. But you know, I've been around Greg for the last two or three years on the beat, and it's incredible how you greg you know put this story together uh you've kind of g gave a pretty good explanation of it all but it is kind of a you're almost putting the whole thing together in those five to seven minutes after the the buzzer rings because you're editing and, and putting in stats and maneuvering different pieces here and, and kind of writing the little game recap at the top to let people know how it ended or how it went and it's incredible what you do to get that up and you know, it's 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 you've kind of explained it pretty well but are there any other moments that it's it's, it's it seems so stressful because I'm next to you. I don't want to talk to you because I don't want to bother <laughs> you. But it, I mean, to be I'm mean, trying to paint the picture for the the listeners. I mean, it's you're trying to get this whole big story out of this big game. Could be Duke, could be State, could be you know a top ten game, and you're trying to get it put out and edited and, and with a picture within you know those ten minutes. Are there any other, um, you know? Is there, other than that Villanova game, any other memorable 
kind of moments where you've had to just scrap it and start over or something, you know, I've been next to you when your computer messes up or something <laughs> with the website goes down, you're just sitting there freaking out. It's a lot less, a lot more stressful than, than my situation. Yeah. Well, the, I guess one that kind of stands out and this happens occasionally, it's happened a few times in basketball, but the North Carolina pit game back in 2016 uh, football game. Well, Pitt's got that game won. And that game is over. They're up by 13 with, what, four minutes left? And then Mitch does what Mitch did, which is one of the greatest comebacks in UNC history. Uh, com- you know, converts, what was it, three, four downs on one drive. Yeah. Uh, and just an incredible run. So by that point in time, I pretty much had my story written. And then that happens. And so now you're like, all right, so do I just scrap this entire thing and just start fresh? Um, and so there are, there are a number of moments like that where, uh, you know, North Carolina will have a big lead and they lose it. I mean, like the, I guess it was the Louisville basketball game up there a couple of years ago where they had a big lead. Louisville came storming back and ended up winning by double digits in overtime. Uh, and so there, there is some frustration there. Uh, but, but it really, I mean, it's like any, anything else, guys. I mean, the more you do it, the more you get used to it. Uh, it ceases to be as big of a deal as maybe it, would seem i mean you could you could do it if you if you uh handled it enough ross it's not not that <laughs> yeah i did it i did so it a couple easy, times right? yeah i i, I, I appreciate you believing in me greg <laughs> yeah, i did up in tennessee me and evan did at tennessee and i think another game i covered yeah uh, so but um yeah and uh, kind of to give insight what i do i mean i'm not you know greg's the the lead beat writer but I'm creating content sometimes mid-game that I don't know if a lot of subscribers see, but it's mostly for our Facebook page and just get some clicks and some traffic to the page. You know, any big dunk, you know, I grab that video, find it on Twitter or anybody who, who has a video, and I throw it to an article. I do recruiting photos mid-game if, if I can snag a photo of a top recruit, uh, whether football or basketball, and get that up too. Um, and see what I mean. Anything crazy has happened. I, I remember you were at this game. I'm sure Greg when uh, when Roy fainted up at Boston College, and yep. I mean that became the story. And I, I was watching at home, and I was working for Carolina Blue and 24 seven Sports. And you know you're updating that, and you know putting together little stories that happened because it's breaking news. I think it happened before halftime, if I remember. Um, and so that kind of stuff happens. You just never know what can happen in a game um and you mentioned the the drunk fan in las vegas um and there's just a lot of different things you know any kind of poppy content that you think you know the, the casual fan will be interested i'm putting that together mid-game and then and assisting greg and then after the game um it's a whole different story about what we kind of cover and what we talk about and, and w- what we're trying to build in terms of content yeah and i think ross is, is downplaying kind of his, his role here because what has happened really over the last, I mean, I would say five years, um, is that social media has become such a, a firestorm, um, especially when it comes to, to sports. Um, and, you know, I, I can remember back when we first started doing Twitter, we had like 10,000 followers back in 2011 or so. And one of the big first booms that we had uh, was we broke the story that Kendall Marshall would not be playing against Kansas the Elite Eight. Uh, we tweeted that out that Sunday afternoon. Uh, Aaron Andrews, who was you know really big at the time for ESPN, she grabbed a hold of it and was like, "Whoa, this is big news!" And she <laughs> tweeted it, and it, it just exploded. 
Um, and that was really our first understanding of, wow, this is like something where we can utilize this. Um, and for years, though, I mean, there were, there were situations where there'd be this big play during a game that we didn't have time during the game to deal with it. I mean, we're dealing with the actual facts of the game. And while that's a cool tidbit, we couldn't actually get to it until you know, an hour after the game. But what Ross has been able to do is if there's a big play or uh, a big touchdown or a fight or, like you said, Roy faints, you know, he can grab that, <laughs> throw it up on on the boards, throw it up on social media, I mean, ASAP. Uh, and that's invaluable now because everybody uh, is a consumer and they want it real time. And so the ability for us to both have you know, the, the traditional coverage while at the same time being able to add all the different components to social media and the, the immediacy of it, the urgency of it, um, I think has really kind of you know, rounded out our, our coverage. I'll give a good example. Uh, I mentioned some recruits. You know, there's a big-time recruit like Zion Williamson at the, at the football game or at, at UNC. I always try to grab a picture or a video and get that up as soon as possible, and it's a huge story to kind of show that player is there. Uh, we do that. We did that for the um, late night with Roy. Always, even for the freak show, you know, any kind of big news that you know will do well on uh, Facebook and Twitter, we got that up. But also, like when Jay Cole came to the UNC game, I think two years ago, I think Joel Joel James was on that team because he pointed at him after he made a fadeaway basket. Um, I don't know if uh, if all our listeners know who Jay Cole is, but he's a rapper from. Um, hip-hop artist from Fayetteville, big-time rapper. I mean, I put that into a story, and it was huge content and huge traffic because it, it kind of crosses sports and mixes it with pop culture. And when you can get that going, it's, uh, it's a gold mine for traffic and, and, and also mixing sports and politics, interesting enough, is also a huge traffic gold mine. That kind of stuff where you can get cross-cultural things um, and, and mix it in with Carolina sports or anything with rivalries and Duke, that all does really well for content. And that's what I'm kind of looking for mid-game um, and trying to just get some clicks and get some traffic and get eyes on things. And, and that's a big part of my role uh, during game days. Oh, another thing, like when Cam Johnson was um, getting getting close to being being ready or when Joel Berry was getting ready, his hand was injured and he was shooting and dribbling and Cam Johnson was moving after his knee injury. We would get to the game early, and Ben and I did that. And we took some video. And we got that up in the pregame um, in the Dean Dome, and th- those stories are huge because fans are eager to see how Cam Johnson looked. He wasn't playing, but they want to know if, if he was shooting, was he stretching, was he moving, uh, was he walking, was he limping. Same with Joel Berry. Was he shooting with that offhand? Was he dribbling? And that kind of uh, video and seeing that stuff, and we can put it on Twitter and get it out quick. That's a huge part of what we do um, uh, before the game. Also, like quarterbacks throwing, who's throwing the most, that kind of stuff as well. So that's a big stuff that myself, uh, Greg, Ben, and also our video guy, John uh, Bowman, has had a, has played a big role in getting that pregame video up quickly that we can put into a story. It is fascinating to me how many people watch games now with a phone in their hand. Um, either at the game or sitting in front of their television to see the stuff you guys post or tweet about and how it explodes so quickly um, during the game. Greg, let me ask you this. And Ross, you, you haven't been doing it as long as Greg has, or definitely not as long as I've done it. But does it matter 
And this is a question people used to ask me, Greg, and it's kind of silly, but kind of not. Does it matter where you sit as Ooh. far as a press member? Because, and it's more so in basketball, obviously, even though at football, you can get down on the sidelines if you wanted to. But back in the day in the Smith Center, J.B. Sissel and I used to sit on the court right under the trombone section. And you know what comes out of trombones other than music uh, most of the time. <laughs> so they stuck inside Carolina there. Um, but you, when you're sitting there, you talked about taking the emotion out of covering a game. But when you're sitting that close to courtside, um, whether it's in uh, Cameron Indoor or in Smith Center at that time or PNC or Reynolds, it's a completely different environment than it is sitting up high away from the court. And, you know, I've been run over by Julius Peppers before. JB almost got killed by some kid for UCLA. JB took the knee to the forehead. Um, one of the kids sitting in the airplane seats um, there behind JB. JB ended up getting um, the jersey from the UCLA player after the game because he basically crushed JB on his way to a little kid to, to smash him too. Um, but in your opinion, or does it matter to you? And where where do you rather sit um, when you're covering a game? Yeah, it absolutely matters. Um, and it, it matters, especially in basketball, because I, I think the the best thing that we can provide as as sports writers um, is little details that maybe otherwise you wouldn't see. You mentioned you know, people watching the game and following Twitter. Most Carolina fans, at least most people that are on IC, watch every game. So if I'm just sitting all the way back up in the top, like at Indiana or at Clemson, I mean, you're at, on the roof essentially looking down on the game. Um, and so you're you're seeing the same thing that people are seeing at home, just from a farther view, and you don't have all the replays. So you're somewhat at a disadvantage there. But when you're up close, uh, like NCAA – uh, as I've said before, I'm not a big NCAA fan, but they, they put on great tournaments and they do a good job with where they, they seat media for the most part. Um, and so you're able to sit around the uh, near the teams that you cover and you can hear the coaching staff barking at one another. You can hear Roy Williams yelling at somebody to play better defense. Um, I'll never forget in 2008 in San Antonio, I'm sitting directly behind the UNC bench when Kansas goes on that big first half run and uh, Quentin Thomas and Danny green are arguing and you never really seen that throughout the season. Like the guys were rattled. Um, and so in that moment, you're like, wow, this is very telling. And then you see them kind of rally together and go on that big run that, that ultimately fell short. So you see a lot of unique things like that. Uh, and you can kind of get a sense of chemistry. You can get a sense of how Roy thinks games are going. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly matters where you sit. Um, and then, you know, football-wise, on the field is completely different. I mean, as a, as a sports writer, uh, it pains me to say, but you are better watching from up top because you can actually see plays play out and you can get an idea of what's working and what's not. Uh, but in 2010, kind of a great example, at the Music City Bowl, uh, Buck Sanders and I were out there. We did a radio show before the game, went to the game. Uh, that was the, the controversial ending uh, at North Carolina. You know, kicked the field goal to win that game. But as that game is, is coming to a, a close there, I mean, you had 
liquor bottles, you had beer <laughs> bottles throwing onto the field, right? And Dante Page Moss, you know, he picks up a beer bottle and and salutes the crowd. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was just a phenomenal scene. And so you get to see a lot of unique things like that. Uh, but you know, I don't, I have no idea, and I'm, I'm not a, I'm never been a football coach. I have no idea how football coaches can sit on the sideline and get a good understanding of how plays play out. I, mean, I can do it from up top because you see everything. But when you're just looking out and there's just a mass of people, uh, I'm just amazed that they're able to see exactly how things play out because that's uh, – I, I guess if you do it enough, you get used to it. But I, I just don't have that, that good of a vision for that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was fascinating to see plays from down there. You, you get a sense of – you know, that's the one thing that people watching these games do not understand is how big, strong, and fast all of these guys are, whether the team stinks or not. Um, and it's just a different perspective. And sitting down on the court, um, especially in a place like Cameron Indoor, and we've talked about the Joe Forte game and seeing those games up close, um, it is imp- it's more impressive to me to see it that close and in person than it is watching on television over and over but anyway uh ross let's sort of pivot to post game and as we wrap this show let's do post game football um you know it's changed a lot it's very different on the road versus at home um, with what you get but what are you doing as soon as the horn blows the ball game's over um, walk us through that and greg you chime in after yeah i mean so usually um you know greg is finishing up the first report and so he stays in the press box. Uh, John Bowman and I head to um, the, I guess, the media press room, uh, the press conference room, which is on the fifth floor <clears throat> in the Keenan Football Center. We kind of wait for um, for Fedora to come to the stand. Usually takes 10, 10 minutes or so. And, and usually Greg can get there in time to, to catch most of the uh, press conference. You know, and so and Fedora's family comes in. There's a bunch of people in that room, all the TV cameras and everything. And um, we are waiting for for Fedora to come and, and speak. And once we get that, you know, she, you, for usually after uh, games, he speaks no no more than ten minutes. Usually around between six and eight minutes, um, depending on you know win or loss. And after that, you know, questions are asked, so forth uh, and so forth. After that, we are um, kind of shuffled into, I think it's called the recruiting area. It's just kind of a big open area with a bunch of tables and, and chairs and everything overlooking the field and they bring out, um, you know, anywhere between five, four, five, six, seven players. Uh, like usually the guys had big games or the senior junior leaders, if it was a loss. So you usually get one of the quarterbacks and a, a defensive lineman, an offensive lineman, a, a running back had a good game or wide receiver with a big game. And one of the linebacker leaders or, or defensive backs. And we just, uh, you know, get a bunch of content and, and, and get a bunch of interviews and, and kind of, ask questions that we can use to help build our stories and take the different angles on what we're doing for our sidebars and maybe using for a Sunday article and things like that. And then we head back to the press box. Usually there's some pizza waiting for us, courtesy of UNC athletics. And we're kind of just grinding and we're just you know figuring out what we want to write and talking with each other. And I usually do a sidebar to, uh, get up with some videos, and Greg usually does a sidebar and, and gets the story ready for Sunday as well for football. And, and you know, we're in there and kind of everything. everybody's leaving the stadium and they're cleaning the field. And we're there for, you know, usually two hours, 
or more after the game, um, getting up everything we can before we have to head home and, and go to bed. So it's a it's a long day. Football is a long day. Adding in that radio show, um, the pregame, the game, postgame media availability, and then kind of crushing out content uh, late into the the afternoon and evening. What can Greg, you add to that, Greg? Sorry. Yeah, but Greg, do you still? Um, and I know you you do in basketball. I assume you do. You still can say, "Hey, can I get so and so?" in this post game, I mean, they don't have to grant your request, but do they still come around and ask who you might want to talk to? And when you go to the post game, um, your approach to it, some guys are asking their one question and to get whatever quote they're looking for their article. Uh, but how do you approach those situations in both sports? Yeah, well, there's, there's different uh, aspects of it because when you talk about newspapers, for example, uh, like the internet, I don't know exactly what their schedule is anymore, but I know at one point they had an 11:30 deadline, a 12 deadline, and 12:30 deadline, and basically that dealt with um, proximity. So the further out you get away from their publishing uh, department, uh, the the earlier the deadline, just to be able to get the papers out. And so what they are tasked with doing is okay. They have an immediate deadline essentially for some of the late games. Then they have another 30 minutes to flesh out a little bit more and then another one. And then they have whatever for their own line. So those are the situations where a lot of the newspapers after games are like, I need, I need a quick quote and that's it. And they can, they have to run back. Uh, One of the benefits of what we do at IC, because we don't have those uh, hard deadlines. I mean, we have a desire to get stuff up as soon as we can. But as Ross said for football, uh, we've decided to change things up in recent years, and, and I basically do a an all-encompassing type story on Sunday. And so I'm able to kind of watch the game, not feel impressed other than that first report, and I kind of think about, okay, what does this game mean? What what did we learn big picture here? Uh, and so when I go into the post game with players, I'm not thinking necessarily about the specifics of that game. Now, I do ask questions in that regard, but I'm thinking more big picture. And so typically what you'll have as you walk in and you have a horde of people surround a player. And then after all the obvious questions are asked, uh, you know, 15 of the 20, you leave and go to some other player. And so you're left with just a couple people still talking to MJ Stewart or Donnie miles or whoever. And you can ask some questions about leadership and how was chemistry on the sideline. And when this player got hurt, how did things change and what kind of adjustments did you make? Um, and so you can kind of pry and get a little bit deeper into it. And one of the things about uh, being around the team, like we are all the time, whenever we have access, is you learn which players are, are more forthcoming. You know, everybody knew Marcus Page, for example, was a great quote. Uh, but it's finding uh, who else is somebody that you can go to and say, okay, look, on this particular play, this happened. Why? What happened? Uh, and so you have to kind of figure out who are the guys that can talk to you about that. And then the other aspect of it, too, uh, and this this comes with just experience, is it's easy to ask questions after a win because everybody's happy, everybody's joyful and all that. But after losses, especially tough losses, uh, you have to be uh, respectful because some players take losses a lot harder than other guys. And then if it's a really important game, uh, you don't want to come off as being – uh, you're disrespectful whatsoever. You, you, you want to respect their space. And so you have to ask questions the right way. Uh, you have to kind of be 
cognizant of their feelings, how they're handling things, if they're mad, if they're sad, whatever it may be. Uh, and so your questions change based on how those players are acting. Uh, and so there's a lot of, a lot of dynamic that goes into it. And that's just being around for years and years and, and understanding how to approach situations. Um, because you do have you know, TV, TV people, for example, um, because they just want that sound bite. That's just kind of how they're built. That's how they're wired. Uh, they're, they're brash and ask <laughs> obvious questions because they have to be. I mean, that's just what they do. Uh, we're a little bit different in how we handle things. You know, we're more concerned with, you know, as we're all said, kind of building relationships with players because if, if we ask a question that maybe wasn't uh, the best question to ask, we got to turn around and talk to those guys again three days later. Uh, and you don't want them saying, wait a minute, you asked me that bad question the other day. Why am I going to help you now? Uh, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, lot of dynamics in play with that. I, I think Greg touched on a great part about you know, wins versus losses and approaching question asking. And that's, I mean, I've, I've been doing this for three or four years, five, three years in Chapel Hill and four or five kind of before that. And Greg's been doing it a lot longer than me. And you, you definitely learn, you know, which players are the ones you can kind of approach and, and when they lose a game, like you can talk to this guy and, and they'll give you something good and you know which players it's not even worth your time because they're going to be in such a bad mood. And um, it's really valuable to kind of know how to ask a question, know who to ask, how to phrase it to, to try to get something good um, from the the answer. Um, you know, Joel Berry was, and Theo Pinson were always pretty good with um, quotes after losses. Um Kenny Meeks, Bryce Johnson, I remember not being as good after losses. Um, I mean, Mar I only covered, covered Marcus Page one year. He seemed to be pretty good as well. Now, I was in the locker room when they lost to Villanova in the NCAA championship game. That was weird. That was kind of my first uh, NCAA tournament. And that was just a such a such a weird, interesting, sad locker room. And then I was in it the, the year after when they won, and that was – completely obviously completely different it was it was night and day and, and that was just a fun yeah, they just won national championship it was unbelievable sean may was throwing sprites to theo pinson across the room and people were just you know throwing water everywhere and call facetiming friends and then i was in the locker room in charlotte this year when they lost texas a&m and I had a different perspective on how to approach it. Cam Johnson was super mature about it. You know, Joel Berry and Theo Pinson had already won one, and, and it was a little bit different answering, asking questions to them because they had been there and they had seen the ultimate success. And it didn't seem like the, they took the loss as bad because they know they had been there and they had already won one. So, and that applies to football. I mean, UNC lost nine football games last year, and it came to a point where it was kind of like, you know, they knew they are going to lose and, at, at times. And, it was a little bit easier to approach certain players. And, and so that's a very interesting con, a dynamic. You kind of ask yourself going into the locker room, going into post game of how you're going to approach asking quit certain questions to certain people. And, and another thing Greg touched on, which is very interesting is the TV cameras coming in at the end of the basketball season. And they haven't been there for much of the whole season. They haven't been every game. They're there for the NCAA tournament. They're asking just, they, they ask questions that are just so stupid because they don't know they don't know the team they don't know the players they're asking who is this who is that and some of the beat guys get get so upset about the way that TV reporters kind of take over a scrum 
um, especially with their cameras there and everything. And, and they will use it, those cameras as a weapon. It's, it's just funny. I just remember Luke DeCock <laughs> being so mad after one game because Luke covers. He covers. He went to a lot of UNC games. He got so mad at some TV guys of how they were asking questions and taking over certain interviews. It was, it was quite humorous uh, to see that. Yeah, like I said, they they'll use those cameras as weapons. And exactly. Yeah. Out. And I think I saw uh, somebody do that to a, a female reporter in front of LeBron James or something the other day, and he said, "No, you're going to apologize to her." Yeah, I haven't seen anybody in Carolina locker room apologize. I, I've, I've seen nothing. some. I've seen some fights. Uh, a little not fights, but you know, like little disagreements with camera guys getting in ways of, of riders and, and so far and, and just like that. So it's, it's, it gets kind of dicey sometimes. It gets a little testy. Greg, best post-game interview for me, and it dates me, but it was Abe Coda. The guy always had something good, something funny, something uh, relevant at the time to say, but best post-game interview for you, Greg. Uh, um, Marcus Page is up there for sure. Um, Bobby Frazier was very good. Uh, let's see who else. Marquise Williams was a very good interview. Yeah, I was going to say Marquise. Um, yeah, I mean those are, those are probably the ones that that kind of stand out. T.J. Yates. Uh, by the time he got to be a junior and senior, uh, I thought he was very good because he would just tell you exactly what he thought. You know, he's kind of a laid back guy, uh, but he's which is kind of how I am. So I, I kind of appreciate that. But he would. Yeah, he would take his time and explain things to you. So there's there's been a handful of guys. And I'll say this. Um, when I came on the beat, I wasn't exactly sure how things were going to be with talking with players. If there's going to be a lot that were cocky or a lot that were disrespectful or, or didn't care. And there have been, I mean, I, I can probably count on one hand the number of guys in the last 11 years uh, that I've been like, man, that, you know, there's no reason for him to be like that, or he's got to do better than that. Most of these kids, I mean, large majority, overwhelming majority, uh, are, are good kids, and they're trying. You know, they're in front of cameras and reporters, trying to ask what, you know, answer questions to the best of their ability. And so, uh, a lot of props to them for uh, for doing a good job with that, because that's, that's a tough position to be in, especially after a loss. And all these kids do a really good job with it. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. One thing I learned doing it, and it's whether it's Carolina blue or different shade of blue or even the red um, or, or other teams talking to opponent lockers, they're all just kids playing a sport. And, and like you said, Greg, for the most part, and I'm not trying to be sappy or whatever, but for the most part, um, probably 99% of them are not much different than any of us. They just play a sport a little better or a lot better in some people's cases than we can. Um, but rare is the guy that's just a total jerk and it's not specific to one team or the other. So Ross, anything to wrap this bunny up? It's well, been gonna, an hour. going to give my, my, my fair players interview. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I liked, uh, Andre Smith was, was very personal and funny. Uh, Sha- Shaquille Rashad, the linebacker a couple of years ago was great. Marquise Williams was great. Um, you know, Joel Berry and Theo Pinson were good quotes um, the last couple of seasons. Cameron Johnson's been good as well. Really thoughtful, smart guy to sit down and talk with Cameron Johnson. So I'm looking forward to covering him again. Um, so those would be the guys I would go with. And I remember we brought up that pit game earlier. I just remember Bug Howard's quote following the pit game about how it's a 50-50 ball, but I make it 80-20. 
that was pretty funny. Uh, nice. Came to mind after that, <laughs> but um, yeah, UNC's good about access, and it's it's always it's cool following players um from their freshman year all the way to their junior and senior year. It's kind of cool to see them develop. Michael Carter is another guy, the running back. He's a pretty funny guy, and he's going to be a pretty good quote in the next couple of years. Good stuff. Uh, worst quote, quote I remember the most before we wrap it is uh, Max Owens told me, I don't care just as long as we win. Um, and that's probably stuck with me the most uh, as far as how players think. Um, when they're on these teams for the most part. But anyway, just random tidbit there. Greg Ross, it's been a long one. It's been a good one. A lot of good stuff here. Greg will have to do it again and share more stories from the road because there are a bunch out there, and I'm sure folks would like to hear about them one day. But I'm yeah, and I, we haven't we haven't talked about it, but we can save this for another one. We've mentioned it before. But in the Bahamas, uh, 2010, <laughs> waiting on Carolina's opponent to show up, because it was like 10 minutes late and up pulls a pickup truck with a bunch of dudes in the back of the pickup truck. <laughs> they hop out and that's who North Carolina played, but we can tell that story a, a later time, Tommy. And, and if you all have any, go ahead, Tommy. No, I was going to say one of those guys was a pretty high draft. Well, we'll be a pretty high draft pick. Sorry, well, it was before it was four years before Aton, but yeah, it was, uh, it was much more, uh, much more of a developed uh, situation. <laughs> when Aton played, uh, there was a little bit more uh, third worldly back yeah, in 2010. If, if anybody has any more questions that we kind of missed on, you can feel free to comment on this uh, this thread on the message board. We'll do our best to kind of answer this. Absolutely. Good job, boys. Appreciate y'all joining me. We'll talk soon. See you, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Your home for Tar Heel football, basketball, and recruiting.